0: Great hymn to enter into, turning to his word. Let's go before the Lord in a prayer of illumination, asking God to meet us, to give us understanding, to shape our hearts and minds as we worship him through the preaching of his word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are a triune God of love and that you have indeed given us your word because you love us, motivated by your love, intended to shape us to be the people that you are purifying for yourself, a people of your very own possession, a people in covenant relationship with you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We humbly plead that you would give us understanding, that you would open our hearts, and as you open them, that you would soften them, that we would receive your word. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher, our comforter, our counselor, as we continue to worship you in your presence this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you you are able, if you'd please stand. The reading upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, take this is my body and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God this is the word of the Lord you may be seated All right, Shane, I should let you get it out of your system. Yay, Eagles last week, right? Okay, I, you know, got to recap one more time for the sake of my elder brother back there. Uh, Congratulations to the Eagles fans. How many of you, now I gave this commercial last week, any of you stay after, stay up late, DVR, do whatever the technology is, and watch the show This Is Us? Shane again. Oh, Nancy, all right, Wait a so we had a couple people, yes, we watched it, and it was a tremendous episode, so sorry, you're getting another This Is Us thing. And no matter what, I look at the father of that show, Jack Pearson, and Jack Pearson is a great father, great husband, great dad, but the thought crossed my mind, I can never live up to that. As an inspiration, in fact, I'm thrilled to see TV present a husband and a dad in a positive life, but I'm going, if you live up to him, or try to, or strive after, and you're trying to seek to be him, it will crush you. And it made me thought of Passover. It made me thought of Passover, which Jesus is sending his disciples, prepare, go into the city, find uh, this person. Notice everything happens exactly the way he says it's going to happen. You'll find this person, lo and behold, they find this person. You'll go see to the master of the house. You'll find an upper room furnished, prepare the Passover there. PCA pastor Scott Saltz, I love how he puts it. He says, more than coming to be our example, Jesus came to be our rescue. Without his rescue, his example will only crush us. But with his rescue, his example can then inspire us. If you're looking at Jack Pearson to be an example, it will crush you. If you're trying to live the Christian life, as beautiful as the Christian life is, if you're trying to live up to principles and do the works and all of that, friends, please hear this. The Bible as an inspiration will crush you. You need a Savior who will rescue you, who will save you, who will will deliver you. The Passover is all about rescue, and where we are in our study of Mark's Gospels, the preparation and the celebrating of the Passover, verse 12, sets the context, the first day of unleavened bread, the time of the Passover. We want to look this morning at what is the Passover all about. When I turned 40 years old, and yes, it was a while ago, Evie threw me a surprise birthday party. She got me good. I had no idea it was coming. We were living in Oklahoma at the time. It was March 2002, so less than a year later, we'd be moving to Florida. I had no idea of that at the time. As all parties do, there were decorations. There was good food. Our friends were all there. It was a festive time. Memorable for me. One commentator commenting on this passage that we're looking at this morning says... Of meals and parties and what it represents in Passover he writes it's a deep human instinct I believe a God-given one that we mark significant moments with significant meals for sharing a meal especially a festive one binds together a family a group of friends a collection of colleagues Such meals say more than we could ever put into words about who we are, how we feel about one another, and the hopes and joys that we share together. The meal not only feeds our bodies, that seems in some ways the least significant part of it, it says something and it does something, actually changing us so that after it, part of who we actually are is the people who shared that meal together with all that it it meant. The writer continues to say the great Jewish festivals all function in this way. Most of them connected to the retelling of some part of the story of how God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Supreme among those festivals was Passover. Passover says, here's the meaning of it, loud and clear, despite all appearances, we are God's free people it serves to sustain loyalty it encourages faith hope and love this meal will say what he most wants to say to his followers and because it's to be repeated and in the text that we're looking at we're actually going to look at this next week it is fulfilled in the celebration of the lord's supper which is one of the reasons why we're looking at old testament background today to dive in more fully to the meaning of the lord's supper next lord's day Because this meal says what God most wants to say to his followers, and because it's to be repeated, it will go on saying it. This meal will do what needs to be done again and again, changing, affecting, impacting his followers, making them and forming them the people who discover that through his achievement, God's kingdom is now coming on earth as it is in heaven. Passover says we are God's free people. And Jesus wants his people to know and to celebrate. That's why the text says, do this in remembrance of me. Part of how sin affects us is it makes us forget. We forget who we belong to. We forget we're free. We forget that we're gods. We forget that we're safe. We forget that we're forgiven. We forget that there's no condemnation. We forget that he's his children. And God has given us means, and that means is a meal, God's extravagant hospitality, opening his heart, his home, and his table to feed us in order to remind us and renew us and reinvigorate us and refresh us that we are rescued and we are God's free people. As we continue to move forward in Mark's gospel, we need to understand the Old Testament background that Jesus is coming as the new Moses ushering in a new exodus remember from the disciple standpoint where all they have is the Old Testament scriptures New Testament in the original reading here the, the disciples would not have had the New Testament written down yet when these events actually occurred so for them the exodus was the salvation event and thus the salvation paradigm of the Old Testament Passover says we are God's free people Passover says you are rescued. What is this text? And there's a reason you knew this. When I plan worship, by the way, I do this fairly intentionally. We have in your bulletin printed Exodus 12. Why? Because we're going to refer back to that many times in this text. So you know, see, I'm doing things. You may not like it, but I'm being very intentional and very purposeful here. And I won't apologize for that. But I've printed out Exodus 12, had Carl read it. I even asked Carl to read it for both services. So that you can refer back and forth, because Mark 14, Jesus is sending the disciples to prepare the Passover meal. And then the institution of the Last Supper in fulfillment of the Passover is all based on that Old Testament Exodus background. So I want you to be ready to, because I'm going to refer back several times, so it's printed, it's prepared for you. It's printed in your bulletins, in your program there, Exodus chapter 12. And so based on these texts, we're going to look at three things. I want us to look at the why of rescue, the how of rescue, and the what of rescue. The why of rescue, the how of rescue, and the what. What benefits, what implications come from rescue? First of all, the why of rescue. In a word, the why of rescue is the glory of God. Amazingly, Isaiah, when he's recounting the works of the Lord, he's looking back at the Exodus. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, he says, The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. I wonder when you were confessing your sins earlier in the service, did it cross your mind that God exalts himself? glorifies himself, that it pleases him, that his heart is so open wide to you that he delights in showing you mercy. I wonder sometimes why we we ought not come to God in confession with kind of a groveling heart. Oh God, here I am, I messed up again. Woe is me, maybe. One more time, I plead, I beg, I grovel. You know when we do that, what we're doing? We're basically saying, and I know we don't think this out, But we're basically basing our relationship with God, our acceptance with God, with the quality of our Christian lives. You may not be saying, I live my life by works, but that's what you're doing. Jesus, God, exalts himself to show mercy to you. Because he's pleased, he accepts, he's glorified in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ confession is there to restore relationship with god to come back and say god is my life and i've been foolish enough to be living my life looking to all sorts of things to satisfy me i need my desires reordered the why of rescue is the glory of god god is making a name for himself to showcase and demonstrate his supreme lordship and superiority salvation is of and for the lord he saves us for himself and for his own glory In Exodus 12, here's where you want to look at your bulletins, look at your programs. and verse 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt. Here's the background. Notice the language. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the goods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In Isaiah 63, when Isaiah was recounting the glorious works of the Lord. Remember, I said the Exodus was the model, the paradigm. It was the salvation event of the Old Testament. So Isaiah looking back and Isaiah sixty-three says, Then he remembered the days of old. Listen to his language. I'm remembering what's past. I remember the days of old. Of Moses and his people. You read that and you need to be thinking. I'm thinking about Exodus. I'm thinking about Red Sea. I'm thinking about Passover. I'm thinking about unleavened bread. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people To make, here's the why of rescue, to make for yourself a glorious name. See, the context, think about this for a second. The context of the Passover is what? It's the plagues, is it not? The plagues, the ten plagues that God is doing. And what is he doing in the plagues? He's evidencing his absolute supremacy, superiority, and lordship. In other words, he's saying, let me take on all the gods of Egypt. Bring them on. Bring them to me. And he's confronting them, one by one, defeating their gods. We also see the glory of God in this rescue, the why of rescue, by God bringing together two other attributes of himself. That is his love and his justice. See, one of the most difficult doctrines for people to get their minds around, to people to get our hearts wrapped around, is the doctrine of God being at the same time, 100% both a God of love and a God of justice. See, how can God, be a God of love, also be filled with wrath and anger? If he's loving, shouldn't he just forgive? Our culture definitely says he just forgives. He's tolerant. He accepts everything. How can God be both a God, of complete love and mercy, and a God of wrath and anger at the same time? I think nobody does as good a job kind of answering this objection than Tim Keller. Tim Keller begins his response to this objection by pointing out out that all loving persons, part of the characteristics of love, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not just despite of, but because of their love. That if you love a person... And you see them ruining themselves. You see them actively involved in self-destruction. You get angry. He quotes a writer by the name of Becky Pippert, who writes, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Keller points out that the Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying creation's peace and integrity at passover we see a depiction of god's justice and love this is the biblical god how do we see it and that brings us to our next point so if we see the why of rescue the glory of god we now to next see the how of rescue what are the means by which god rescues us Passover is a picture for us of God bringing together both his love and his justice, his mercy, and his absolute holiness and judgment. How does he do this? How does he bring these things together? I want you to think about something for a second. I want you to think about something. In each of the previous plagues, recognize the plague of the firstborn is the tenth plague. In each of the previous nine plagues, where were the Israelites? They were kind of spectators to the whole thing, right? Judgment wasn't upon them. They were kind of watching and going, oh wow, hail. This is interesting weather for this time of year. Frogs. Oh my, gnats. All these things are happening. But now, and I didn't, sorry I didn't print this verse, but Exodus twelve twenty-three says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. Now remember, in the Old Testament background, this is what the disciples would be familiar with as Jesus is giving them instructions to prepare the Passover. God here claimed a right to slay the firstborn both of Israel and of Egypt. Israel was under the same sentence as Egypt. This tenth plague, Israel deserved to die just as much as Egypt did. They could not rest on their own laurels. They could not rest on their being God's people. They could not rest on their own righteousness, for they had sinned, and the justice, the wages of sin, is death. This tenth plague, this plague of death on the firstborn is a sign of judgment against Israel as well as Egypt. It is against all humanity. But what does God do? See, this is the means of rescue, the how of rescue. But God in his great mercy provided his people with a way, a means to be safe. He visited their homes in judgment, but to save them. Israel, the Israelites, like the Egyptians, deserve God's judgment, but they would be saved by pure, undeserved grace. See, God provided for his people, out of sheer grace, what they most needed. See, this is what Jesus is doing here with his disciples in Mark 14. Just like in the original Passover, what happened? God gave detailed instructions on how to choose, how to care for, and how to kill the lamb. He gave what to do with the lamb once it was slain. The meal was to be a reminder, a sign of what the Israelites went through and were saved from, were rescued from in Egypt. This is what is going on in our narrative in Mark. This is why when we get to the fulfillment of it in the Last Supper, what when we take the Lord's Supper we're doing, it's to be done continually as often as you do it in remembrance of me. But the most important thing here was what? The death of the lamb. Because the death of the lamb is a reminder that in salvation, God gives what he demands. He demands judgment. He demands justice. He provides for it. And how does he provide for it? In a substitute. This is how God has worked throughout all of the scriptures. He has always demanded a lamb for the offering for sin. Let me give you just a couple of examples, Old Testament examples. See, I want you to know the background upon which the New, Test- the New Testament is the conclusion, the finishing of the story that's in the Old Testament. Think about Genesis 4 for a second and the story of Cain and Abel, the two brothers who bring offerings to God. Cain brings the first fruits of his soil. By all accounts in the text, he brings a very good offering Abel brings some of the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Now, I want you to think about something. Why does God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's offering? Why does God turn Cain away and accept Abel? What was required for Abel to bring fat portions of his flock? A sacrifice, a substitute. He had to kill a lamb, a substitutionary death as an offering for sin. One more example, go a little bit further. Genesis chapter 22, you have the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And who's Isaac? Isaac's the son of promise, the covenant child. And God commands Abraham, Genesis 22 verse 1 says, and then God tested Abraham, that he take his son Isaac to the mountain to be sacrificed. They get there, they prepare the altar, they lay out Isaac on the altar, only at the very end for the angel of the Lord to provide a lamb as a substitute for the sacrifice. Then every year on the Day of Atonement, God would require the high priest to bring an animal into God's presence and sacrifice it as an offering for the sin. Of the people. Now I want you to notice the progression. I want you to notice how things progress as you work your way through the Old Testament because the Lamb serves all the time as a substitute for larger and larger groups of people. Beginning with individuals, Abel and Abraham, moving on to the nation when you get to Moses, when we're at Passover, to finally when you get to the New Testament. And John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, says, sees Jesus coming and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, world there doesn't mean every individual people, but it means people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. A lamb as a sacrifice. And of course, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. A lamb provided as a substitute for an individual, for a nation, and finally from all the nations of the world. As we say over and over again, the gospel is for the nations. The why of rescue, the glory of God, the how of rescue, through the substitutionary Passover lamb. Finally, the what of rescue. Look again at Exodus, our living church passage. Exodus 12, verse 13. And look what it says. It says, the blood shall be a sign for you. Now this is very important. This is one of the reasons I'm teaching from this text as well. Because again, when we get to the Lord's Supper, what will we say it is? What is the Lord's Supper? It is a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace. So it points away. So in other words baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments that we celebrate as means of grace are not simply confessions of faith. They're not about us. They're objective signs. They point to what God has done in Jesus. They are getting us to come out of ourselves and look at Jesus. They are a sign on the houses where you are. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Death, condemnation, reprobation passes over you. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Judgment has come. Justice and mercy, judgment and love come together. Judgment has come. But the believer who's in Christ, who has Christ as his substitute, doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Which is why Paul can say the what of rescue is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't go in and out of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. All of this is signified in the Passover. All of this is signified in the Passover and accomplished in the death of Jesus. See, and how does this take place? The key is the blood. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture this morning. But this is so important for the background. Leviticus chapter 17 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Very interesting, Steven Spielberg learned while he was doing the movie Prince of Egypt. I guess that came out years ago. The original script, apparently, as I read, had God saying, when I see the mark upon the doorframe. However, Spielberg had, I guess, several religious leaders and Jewish scholars kind of assisting him, consulting with him, and they objected. They said, this isn't specific enough. It's not the mark. It's not the mark that was there. They insisted that the mark had to be made of blood, and apparently Spielberg changed the line to, when I see the blood. See, the Passover is all about the blood. This is why Jesus had to shed his blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And the Passover is blood spilling all over the place. Slaughter of the lambs spilling on their white wool, being sprinkled on the door frames. And again, why this emphasis? Why is this so important? Again, it's the principle of substitution. The substitution represents the taking of a life and the fulfilling of God's judgment. As verse 13 of Exodus 12 said, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And then God says, when I see the blood, so it will be a sign to God. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do you see that dual sign? That first the blood is a sign to you? See, friends, do you see that when your heart is accusing yourself? That when your heart is mired in guilt, or mired in shame... Or can't get out of kind of its accusatory ground. You know, we all speak these things to ourselves. We all kind of baptize ourselves with different names we call ourselves. You need the blood to be assigned to your heart and mind that says there is therefore no condemnation. Guilt is removed. As far as the east is the west, your sins have been removed for you. The blood of Christ needs to be assigned to you. But even that is not enough. It's a sign for God that when God sees the blood, the blood of His Son, the blood of Jesus Christ, He will pass over you. See, the doctrine is actually called the doctrine of propitiation. Where God is saying, because I see the blood, because I see justice satisfied, because wrath can now be turned aside into favor, God's wrath, when He sees that, the sign is a." The blood is a sign to God that his wrath is completely fulfilled, completely satisfied, so you don't enter into judgment. And how is all of this received? Simply by faith. Remember I said earlier, each of the nine plagues, the Israelites were simply spectators. They had nothing to do with gnats and frogs and flies and hail and all darkness that came over. But on this, they had to put their faith and trust in the word of God that was given through Moses. They had to actually exercise faith and trust by getting a lamb. And isn't it interesting, think about this, they were to take and choose the lamb on the 10th day of the month, and then for five days until the 14th, They cared for it. They raised it. The family, can you picture the family playing with this little lamb? They identified with it, became part of the family, and then on the 14th day, they slaughter it. Friends, that takes an act of faith. That takes an act of trust. Do you think that made sense to them? Wait a second, why are you having to do this? Oh, Oh, yeah, we have to kill it? That took faith and trust. Salvation is always... By grace through faith. What significance does this have for you? What benefit? I love how one pastor put it when he said, When Christians look at Christ on the cross, and that's what Passover, that's what the Lord's Supper is all about, looking at Christ on the cross, they say, I should be there. And they also say, I won't ever be there. Let's pray. What can we say to the fact that we won't ever be there, that Jesus, you hung on the cross for us as our substitute. Help us to understand this. Help us to know this. Help this to be ever deepening in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.